Well, good morning, church. If you wanted to grab your Bibles, then we're going to turn to the book of James, chapter 4, where we've left off in our study from a few weeks ago. James, chapter 4. Let me just pause and ask for God's help as we consider his word. If you will, wherever you're at, let's pause to pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'd open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see you for who you are, to see ourselves in light of who you are. Lord, that we would submit our lives to you in trust and obedience that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a few questions. What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What what do you find yourself daydreaming about? Or, Or what gets you really excited throughout the week? What is it that you would say makes living your life worth it? Those are big questions. Those are worldview questions. But they're important questions for us to consider. And the Bible gives us a very clear answer for when we ask, why are we here? What's the purpose of our existence? Why did God create us? The Bible is clear, thank God. As people made in God's image, we exist for God's glory. We exist to display the truth and the infinite worth of God in everything that we do. It's it's talked about all over the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Romans 11.36 says, for from him and through him and to him, are all things. To Him be glory forever. The Bible's consistent message says, God is saying to us that of all the things that we can choose to live for, there is nothing so honorable, so significant, so fitting than to live for the honor and the glory of God. That's why Jesus begins His prayer in the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed be Your name. This way of life, this purpose for our existence, reaches beyond the bounds of this life. It's the only purpose that has the means to actually give us the joy that our hearts long for, the joy that we were created for, that's found in God. I like how the Catechism summarizes the Bible's teaching on our purpose for existence. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why we exist. Now for many, they they hear the Bible's teaching, or what the catechism is is saying, and they hear this, and it sounds good! Sign me up! Until they realize that following God means trusting Him with their happiness. It's one thing to have God as one piece of the pie that is our life. But 
But God demands not just a piece of the pie of our life. He wants the whole thing. He demands the whole thing. He's worthy of the whole thing. And so when it comes to things that we deem as necessary, I've got to have this for my happiness. It's in those things that are valuable to us that we often take the reins up again. Or we try to grab control of our lives so that we don't have to trust somebody else for our happiness. We can eliminate the risk that comes with trusting God. And we can guarantee our happiness, or so we think. Several years ago, my family and I went to a museum in Baltimore where they had one of those carnival curved mirrors where you look at it, it kind of presents a distorted image of yourself. And, and sometimes the image is funny. You know, you look in the mirror and your head looks like the size of a beach ball, or sometimes your legs look like they're an inch tall and you have a good laugh. Sometimes the image that it presents, the distorted image, is flattering, right? Maybe you're overweight, but you look into this carnival mirror and all of a sudden you look like a bodybuilder. <laughs> Looking pretty good. In the same way, sin is like a spiritual carnival mirror. Sin reflects a distorted image of ourselves. We look into this image that sin is saying about who we are, and we begin to think that the chief end of man is me. My glory, my comfort, my desire, my name. It's a lie. It's a distorted image. But the problem is that, is that in this world, when all the mirrors feed us the same consistent lie, well, we start to believe what we see. We become deceived. And we begin to live as if we are God. We make William Henley's poem our life's motto. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But are you? Am I? Friends, in our study of James, we stopped a few weeks ago in chapter 4, verse 10, and where James says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. James' cure for the envy and the selfishness that's in our hearts that produces quarrels between us and other people and quarrels or enmity between us and God, James' cure is humility. And then in, in, in chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, he spells out what it looks like for us to humble ourselves before God, in terms of our relationship with God. He, he shows us what repentance looks like. But James, being the, the wise and good pastor that he is, understands that pride can raise its ugly head in other areas of our life as well. Namely, pride can pop up again in our relationships with other people. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 this morning. Pride can pop up in our plans for the future. That's what James is going to talk about in verses 13 through 17. And pride 
can pop up in the resources that God gives us in how we use money and the possessions that God entrusts to us. And that's going to come up next week, Lord willing, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. This morning, James will try to flatten the curved carnival mirror of sin. So that when we look into the mirror of God's word, we are left with an accurate picture, an accurate reflection of who we are and who God is. And the reason that he's flattening out the curved mirror is in order to squash the pride that James has been talking about all through chapter 4. So, the question that we want to wrestle with this morning is this. Why is it important for us to have an accurate view of ourselves? Why is it important for us to have an accurate view of ourselves? Point number one. If you're taking notes, point number one. To cure our proud speech. To cure our proud speech. And again, we're going to see this in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. So look with me at God's word, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. James writes, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James' command in verse 11 is pretty straightforward. He says, do not speak evil against your brothers. And that command to not speak evil actually can be translated several ways, depending on which translation you're looking at. It can be translated as do not slander, do not speak ill of, do not speak in a degrading way, don't, don't defame someone with your words. This idea of speaking evil can be something that's a matter, that's, that's a lie, which is what we would call slander, or it could be something that's actually true, which is what we would call gossip. But I think the best way to understand what James is talking about in verse 11 is to examine our intent, the motive of our heart that's driving us to say what we're saying, the reason that we're saying what we're saying. The intent or aim of the speech that James has in mind in verse 11 is the speech that ends up making us look superior and actually brings the other person down a notch or two. In fact, the Greek word that James uses for speak evil literally can be translated as to talk down to someone. It's to, it's to speak in a way, in a, a, a posture of pride. So why would we speak evil against someone? Why would we speak down to in a degrading way like this? Why would we ever want to defame someone? Why would we want to bring someone down a notch? in the eyes of the world, to make ourselves look better. Well, it goes back to what James has been talking about in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. When we make ourselves friends with the world, when we adopt 
the way of the world, when we live by the wisdom of this world, we then define our value based on our performance. By how we compare with someone else. That's how the world assesses value. It goes back to the envy or the selfish ambition that's in our heart that James talked about in verses in chapter 3, verse 14, and in chapter 3, verse 16. If you remember, selfish ambition is a political term. It means to go out and canvas for votes. Vote for me. Look at me. The more people vote for me, the more value I have, says the world. But the problem is, this way of living, is that if people vote for you, well, that means they're not voting for me. Which means that you and I are now in competition. Envy weeps when others succeed. And envy rejoices when others fail because it's operating on this idea of competition. Value is based on competition and comparison. Friends, do you see how pride and envy can infect our relationships and express itself in the way that we talk about each other? Whether in face-to-face or behind behind someone's back or online. I hate to admit it, but there are times when I see another pastor that I know leading well or preaching well, or teaching well. And instead of being thankful and rejoicing for how God is using this person, I'm tempted to speak evil of them. The envy that's in my heart leads me to secretly hope to find some flaw in them. Some flaw in their character. Some flaw in their teaching. Something that I can rightly criticize so that I can feel better about myself. Well, they're not that great. But whether I say it out loud, or whether it's just me thinking about it in my own heart secretly, James rightly calls it what it is. In verse 11, it's evil. Friends, think about the ways that envy and selfish ambition affect your words. Motivate your words about others. We speak evil when we cast blame on others instead of taking responsibility. Or when we respond to someone's right criticism of us with defensiveness. We speak evil when we gossip or slander so that people don't think highly of someone else and we look a little bit better. We speak evil when we grumble or we question legitimate authority that God has put into our life for our good. When we put ourselves first, when we demand what we want, it's then that we're most likely to weaponize our words in the form of criticism or complaints or gossip or slander. We use our words to put others down a notch or two and elevate ourselves to protect the 
our, our, our desires, to make sure that we get what we want. James says that the reason that this evil speech must stop is that the one who speaks this way against a brother or judges them, he says in verse 11, they're speaking evil against the law. And they're judging the law. Now, if you're asking, well, what law does James have in mind? Most likely the law that James has in mind is the law that he mentioned back in chapter 2, verse 8. The royal law. The, the, the law that King Jesus gave to rule over all the laws in all of our lives. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The problem is, is that when envy and selfish ambition weaponize our words, we judge the law. In other words, we find some excuse, we find some way to excuse our speech. We find some way to rationalize, well, I know that King Jesus says that, but it's okay for me to do this. I'm the exception here. And you fill in the blank for what reason or excuse you have to excuse yourself from the law of Jesus. Whether it's posting something online or speaking out loud. But James is saying, listen, to pick and choose which commands of Jesus that you're going to follow and which ones you're exempt from doesn't work. That is the epitome of pride. James 1, 22 said, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. When you're, when you're a hearer but not a doer, you deceive yourselves. James' rebuke in chapter 4, verse 11, is an echo of that same command. You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And I think the way that we are deceiving ourselves, then, is by acting as if we're God. Listen, I know what King Jesus says, but on this one, I'm going to be the one who decides what's good and evil. And so James lovingly, mercifully helps us with his warning. It's his, it's his wake-up call. He, he takes down the curved carnival mirror that, that, that actually gets us to believe that we're somehow God. And he lifts up the flat mirror of God's word and says, look at yourself. Don't forget who you are. He exposes the deception and reminds us, you're not God. If you're wondering whether or not that's what James is saying, verse 12 then clarifies that point and drives it home. Look at verse 12. There is only one Lawgiver. So when you, when you kind of assume that I'll write my own laws, I'll, I'll determine what's right and wrong, James says, no, you don't get to do that. There's, there's only one lawgiver. Not two, not three. There's only one. It's God alone. He is the lawgiver. He's the creator of all things. He determines right and wrong, good and evil. He's the only one who has that say. He is the standard of goodness. And so when we look at the law of God, one of the things that we see is God's 
good, perfect, righteous character reflected in the law. We see how we fall short, but we see God's perfections in his good law. There's only one lawgiver. And there's only one judge. As creator, you and I must answer to God. We don't answer to ourselves. We don't answer to our feelings. We don't answer to our opinions. We don't answer to other people. God will have the final word. God's opinion is what matters most because he alone, James says, is able to save and to destroy. James ends verse 12 by asking the question about our identity. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, who do you think you are to act like God? Who do you think you are to lay aside the command that Jesus gave to all of us to love our neighbor as ourself and then to say, well, I'll, I'm, the except, I'm the exception here. It's okay for me to tear someone down with my words. I'm the judge. Who are you, James says? Now, it's important for us to pause here and ask the question, okay, what does James mean, though, when he talks about us judging our neighbor? Is it always wrong to judge somebody else? Because our culture loves to quote Matthew 7, right? This is the motto that we, they, they don't like certain parts of the Bible, but they'll love Matthew 7 where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. And, and, and they, they take Jesus in Matthew 7 out of context and they make Jesus say something that he's not saying. In other words, what they think Jesus is saying is, hey, judge not lest you be judged means what's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. So don't judge me. We all have our own morality. We all decide what's right and wrong in our own prerogative. So don't judge. But if that's what you think Jesus is saying, if that's what you think James is saying, Jesus and James are actually saying the exact opposite. When, when he asks, when James asks, who are you to judge? He's actually attacking the idea that we can somehow set up our own laws, our own standards, and act as our own judge, as if we are our own God. And that we have the right to judge others based on our own personal standards, opinions, and our own personal morality. James says, no, you don't. You're not God. There's only one lawgiver, one judge. And it's not you and me. We are not God. Yes, there is a right and there is a wrong. But we don't decide it. God decides it. Our job is to submit to it. Not to judge his law. That's a good law. That's not a, that's not a good one. If Jesus says you do it, you do it. He's our king. And so with this context in mind that we're looking at in James 4, it becomes clear that James is not saying that we should never judge. He's talking about judgment in a particular context. Listen, all through this letter, James is judging. (laughs) 
in James chapter 2. He's calling out the sin of partiality. That's a sin. In James chapter 3, he's calling out the out-of-control speech as sin. In chapter 4, he calls out our the sin of worldliness. He's judging all throughout the letter. But here's the difference. James is not judging another Christian on a disputable matter, an issue of a conscience or a, a, a personal opinion. James is not judging by his own personal standard of morality. No, he affirms that God is God and that God declares what's right and wrong in his word. And then James is just simply acting as the mailman. Here's what God said. We should submit to it, including James. So when we hold up God, when, as, as followers of Christ, when we hold up God's standard of right and wrong, we're not being proud. We're not violating God's commandment not to judge. We're not violating what James says. When we hold up God's standard as right and wrong, we, like James, are submitting ourselves to God's standard. That's an act of humility. One example of this is the way the Bible talks about church discipline. You can read about church discipline in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, or 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. Now, most church discipline really happens all the time, but most church discipline happens in private between two Christians who are warning or rebuking in love or encouraging each other to follow Jesus. It happens in private. And so most of the examples of church discipline you'll never hear about unless you yourself are the one being rebuked or encouraging another believer. If Zach Schlegel falls into sin, if I start to drift, then another brother or sister, particularly a member of First Baptist, has the responsibility to, in love, call me out. They have the responsibility to judge me, not according to their own standards, but the standard of God's word. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 says. And then to call me, not just call me out to embarrass me, but to call me back to Christ. Call me back to the path that leads to life. In fact, if we skip ahead, this is how James actually ends his letter. In chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, he says, If anyone among you wanders away from the truth and someone brings him back, let him now... Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death. You see the love that's involved in this? The standard is not our rules, our opinions. It's God's Word. It's God's truth, God's standards. And the aim is not to tear down and make myself look good and make you look bad. No, the aim is to rescue, or as James says in chapter 5, verse 20, it's to save. This right use of judgment within the church, according to the standard of God's word, is necessary. It's humble. It's loving. Proverbs 27, verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. But to the person who criticizes, 
who speaks down or judges another brother or sister in Christ based on their opinion or their standard, James asks the painful question, who are you to judge your neighbor? Church, again, it's a question about identity, a question about seeing ourselves rightly. We are not God. That's Christianity 101. God is God, and we are not. Okay, so we're not God. Got it? Okay, then how does James want us to see ourselves then? Notice in verse 11, the repetition of brothers, brothers, brothers. In one verse, James repeats brothers three times in order to remind us that we are family. God is our father. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And let me just note, on a side note, I know that James has used the word brother a lot throughout his letter. Nineteen times, in fact, he uses the word brother. But he's not just speaking to the men in the church. Ladies, he's talking to you as well. So much the way I might look at the church, First Baptist Church, and say, hey guys, let's get started. I think that's, I think that's what James means. He's referring to everyone. He's referring to, um, to all the Christians in the church. Brothers is James' shorthand for Christian. So we can insert brothers and sisters and be faithful to what James is talking about there. Now the pride that each of us is born with means that we enter into this world with a starting point where Adam and Eve left off in their sin. We don't want God as our God. We want to be God. And that puts us in a begin at the starting point of our lives. It leaves us in a position of hostility, of having God opposed to us. Friends, that any one of us could go from being an enemy of God to now being called brother, sister, child of God, son and daughter of God is God's amazing grace. It's not that we in our goodness came to God on our own. We were running away from Him. Now, James 1.18 makes it very clear that God and His love sought us out as our Father. James 1.18, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. By his own will, when we were running away from him, he made us a part of the family. That's God's mercy. And so, seeing ourselves as James wants us to, brothers and sisters, puts every one of us at First Baptist on the same level. It makes it clear that we have no right to speak down to one another from a position of superiority. The God who had every right to destroy us in His mercy has chosen to save us. And so on this ground of undeserved mercy, 
both the critic and the criticize stand together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is foolish, it is proud for any of us to assume that we have place to talk down to or to speak evil against a brother because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Brothers and sisters, at First Baptist, Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves is not optional. Even if, especially if, that brother or sister in Christ is difficult to love. Even if, especially if, that brother or sister in Christ disagrees with you on a disputable matter. Friends, it's crucial for us to remember this during this election season. When people are passionate about their political opinions. It's important for us as a church to remember what James is talking about as we navigate a long-lasting pandemic. And there's various opinions about what we should be doing. The election and the pandemic are important issues for us to think carefully about. But we cannot make our position on a disputable matter the test of fellowship. We cannot despise or look down We cannot judge or condemn a brother or sister in Christ who disagrees with us on disputable matters. James says we're not exempt from God's command to love our neighbor as ourself. In order to reject them based on our opinions or our standards or our morality or our own homemade laws. We're not God. And so as the Apostle Paul in Romans 15.7 says, here's what we should do. Welcome. Welcome one another. As Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. To reject someone that God has welcomed is pride. It's to forget that God has welcomed me. And that that brother who I disagree with, that sister who I disagree with on a disputable matter, that we are welcomed by Christ the same exact way, by God's sovereign mercy. Friends, if, if that idea of loving somebody who's difficult to love, if you look in your tank and you realize, I don't got anything to love this person with, I'm exhausted, I'm weary, good. Because that puts you in the position to receive God's help. This is what James has been talking about in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 6. God gives grace, not to the proud who think they've got it. God gives grace to the humble who know they don't have the love in their hearts that they need. So, pray. Pray. Plead with God in prayer. God, help me to love those that are difficult to love. Help me to receive them, to welcome them as God in Christ has welcomed me. Keep listening to the sermons. Read God's Word. Cling to God's Word. 
Or as James 4, verse 8 says, draw near to God. And that sweet promise, and He will draw near to you. Friends, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I'm so glad that you're listening in to this sermon, that you join us online and you're listening to this sermon from God's Word. We at First Baptist speak to you this morning, not as those who have their lives together, and certainly not as those who see themselves as good people. We are not good people. We're bad people who have been shown mercy. And so we speak to you this morning. I speak to you as a fellow sinner, broken, but who, by God's word, has good news. If any of us stand before God, who is our judge, if we stand before Him on our own merit, we have no hope. You have no hope. Because the Bible is very clear that we've all sinned against God. We've proudly rebelled against God. And we've rejected His authority. And in our sin, we all deserve death. We deserve hell. But as verse 12 reminds us, God, who is our judge, is able to save. He's able to save not by sweeping sin under the carpet, or by judging us on some cosmic bell curve. That would be to compromise His holiness. No, God is able to save through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died in our place for our sin, and He rose again on the third day so that we could be forgiven. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It's what we sang about in Jesus Messiah earlier this morning. Paul says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, it's not a matter of us trying to be a good enough person. If you think that you're, you're okay, that, that you're a good enough person, you are telling Jesus, I don't need you. Because he came to seek and save the lost. He came as a physician to, to, to heal those who knew they were sick in their sin. Friends, the heart of God. God does not delight in our destruction. God delights. You, you open up and look at the heart of God, you will see a heart that delights in saving sinners. He is able to save through Christ, His Son. But you must respond. You can't just hear this and even agree with this. You have to come to Him. You have to turn away from your sin. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your self-effort, your self-righteousness, your self-reliance. And trust in Jesus. Trust in Him. Draw near to God in Christ, and He will draw near to you. Friends, a, a right view of ourself is important to cure us of our proud speech and 
a right view of self is important because secondly, it's there to cure us of proud planning. That's point number two. If you're taking notes, it cures us of proud planning. And we're going to see this second point in verses 13 through 17. Look at verse 13 with me. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So in verse 13, James envisions someone who's working, a, a, a businessman, a businesswoman. They, they have their business plans, and it looks like they're very thorough. They have a, a location. They have a timeline. They have a business plan and a plan to make a profit. Now, none of those things are bad. It's not wrong to plan. It's not wrong to, to want to make a profit. If you read the book of Proverbs this afternoon, you'll find lots of wisdom from God on planning, on business, on making money. That's not the problem. The problem is their presumption. The problem is not planning. The problem is presumption. They lose sight of who they are. They lose sight of who God is. Verse 13, if you read it carefully, smacks of arrogance. We will go to such and such a town. We will spend a year there. We will trade and we will make a profit. We will. Really? You sure about that? <laughs> With a touch of irony, James comes to those who have a a whole, the whole year planned. And he says to them, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. We will spend a year there. You have no idea. You have no idea what tomorrow's headlines will, will say. But God does. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose, my plan, will stand, and I will do all that I please. No human being has any right to talk like that. God alone can say what Isaiah 46 and 9 10 says. And so James asks us, again, a question about identity. Verse 14, what is your life? He, he already asked in verse 12, who are you? Now he asks a different way. What is your life? How do, we, how do you see yourself? When we step away from the carnival mirror, and we actually see ourselves rightly, Here's what we see. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're a mist. You're a vapor. Imagine you're out in a cold day. You breathe. 
you see this vapor in an instant. It's gone. You're a mist. You're a vapor. You're a puff of smoke. Poof. And you're gone. Reading James 4 is kind of like reading the Ecclesiastes of the New Testament. Earlier this year, we read and studied Ecclesiastes as a church. And there the preacher repeatedly uses this image of a vapor or vanity or a life being a, a poof of smoke. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes, who has unlimited resources, who's wise and works hard in order to gain everything this world has to offer, this is what he says. This is what he says in Ecclesiastes 2. I built houses and planted vineyards. I made myself pools. I had also great possessions. I gathered for myself silver and gold. I became great and surpassed all. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Then, so he's got all this stuff, right? Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it And behold, here's his conclusion, all is vanity, a mist, a vapor, and a striving after the wind. You grab it, what do you have to show for it? So to those who are successful, to those who the world rolls out the red carpet for, think about those people. The movie star, lights flashing, front of the magazine, the beautiful model that we all dream of looking like, the successful businessman who goes from rags to riches and is on the front cover of Forbes magazine, the star athlete who's on Sports Center tonight for their achievements, whose physical abilities boggle our mind. They are impressive. They seem to have it all. And in their prime, it seems like they call the shots. And so we look at them as mere mortals and we envy them. Some of you might be one of them. But James says to all of us, what is your life? You are a mist. You live, you work, you achieve, and then you die. And you will soon be forgotten, no matter how famous you are in this world. A mist that appears for a little while. Ooh, it's really a nice mist, and then vanishes. I think this is hard for our young people to believe. Turning 40 this year, so I I think I'm out of the young person category. But I remember what it's like. You have your whole life ahead of you, and the end seems so far away. Life seems to go on so slowly that you give very little thought to the brevity of life. But for those of you who are reading this and are getting old who are nearing the sunset of your life. James' point is crystal clear. (laughs) 
we look back at our life and we think, where did the time go? I thought I had forever. Where did the time go? It it went by in a flash. It, It went by as a... And for some, it's too late. So how then should we live? James says, don't say this. We will do this, this, and this. So how then should we live? Verse 15. He gives us an alternative. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, verse 15 doesn't mean that we have to audibly verbalize, if the Lord wills, Lord willing, before we do everything in life. Um, What's important is not voicing this statement like a formula or like some good luck charm that that wards away the omens. Um, James' point is that he's talking about a mindset. He's talking about a way of life that recognizes God is God and God is in control and God calls the shots. Now, if saying... Lord willing, is a helpful reminder for you? Say it. You hang around me long enough, you're going to hear me say it. But it's not so much the point of verbalizing it as it is living that way. Friends, life is full of routines. We wake up, we eat breakfast, we carry out our responsibilities at home, at school, at work, we eat supper, we go to bed, and then we wake up the next morning and we do it again and again and again. That's fine, but the the danger of routine is that it lulls us into the presumption that tomorrow must go as we have scheduled it. It's easy to forget that everything that happens tomorrow, everything, whether we do this or that, happens only if the Lord wills. We were supposed to meet outside this morning, and here we are. In online. <laughs> in March, I, I don't think any of us envisioned that this is what the last eight months would have looked like. But here we are. But friends, it didn't it caught us by surprise. But it did not catch God by surprise. And as Pastor Mike mentioned this morning, if the last eight months have taught us anything, it's that we are not in control. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We're not God who determines and declares what tomorrow is going to hold. Only God can do that. Friends, not a hair of your head will fall to the ground apart from God saying so. Notice that James also says, if the Lord wills, we will live. Don't just gloss over that. Let that sink in. If the Lord wills, we will live. It's not just our plans. The reason that you woke up this morning with your heart beating is because of God. Because God said so. And if you wake up tomorrow with breath in your lungs, it's because of God's Sovereign mercy. But if you're like me, it's easy to take that for granted. It's easy to let the routine of life lead us into presumption. In fact, we begin to assume that the things that we have in our lives are things that we deserve. I'm a pretty smart guy. I've eaten healthy, worked out. 
I've made good plans. I've worked hard. I deserve these things. And we look down on those who don't. Friends, you may have worked hard. Praise God. But have you ever considered how God gave you the ability to work? That God gave you your body. God gave you your mind. God gave you your health, your opportunities. God gave you your life and can snatch it away in an instant? What do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, then why do you boast? James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Ecclesiastes teaches that trying to be God will ruin your supper. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to try to be God, to try to run the universe, to know everything, to control everything. God does that with his feet up on the desk. But when we try to do it, it's exhausting. But when we realize that God is God and we are not, when we accept that nothing happens in our lives or in this universe unless the Lord wills, when we see that and believe that, it frees us from the burden of pretending to be God so we can sit down and eat our bread with joy and drink our wine with a merry heart, as Ecclesiastes 9.7 says. Life, friends, life is short. Life is a, a mist that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Friend, what relationship have you ignored? What beauty have you overlooked? What good have you missed? Because you've lived with your head down, worried about all the things that are going on in your life that you have no control over. Lift your head up. Look at God who reigns and rules this world. Not you and me. During lunch today, here's an application for you. During lunch today, take some time and make a list. Brainstorm by yourself, together with those you're eating with, about all the things that are good in your life today. It's easy to overlook those things. We need to be intentional. Write it down. Talk about it over lunch. And then look at that list and remember what James says. That, that nothing happens unless the Lord wills. And then knowing that, take some time to thank God. These things that we overlook, thank God for them. God's sovereignty, His being in control, frees us to enjoy supper and to be grateful. But it also helps us when life throws a curveball at us. When good things are taken away, when we lose our job or our health or the ones that we love, no matter how agonizing or painful it might be, that God is sovereign is the reminder that we can trust God's in control. And we're still in His loving care. And our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Our hope is a living hope that this world and its circumstances cannot touch. Job, who lost everything, said this in Job 121, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You want to say that? You want to live your life blessing his name? I do. It's easy to say that, though. It's easy to read Job 121 and say, yes, amen. It's another thing to live that way. To continue to be thankful in good times. To be trusting God in tragedy. And so James goes on in verse 16 and 17 saying this. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, the right thing to do in this context is, is to give up boasting. The right thing to do is to stop putting ourselves first and speaking down towards others and putting them down. It's to stop being presumptuous in our plans. And I think James assumes that if we're asked, are you God? We would all say, no, I'm not God. We know that. But James then goes on in verse 17 and says, it's easy to know the right thing to do and then turn around and fail to trust God with our lives and to trust God with our happiness. When the whole world says that our value and significance is based on our performance, our looks, our abilities, how we compare with each other, it's hard to humble ourselves. It feels like the whole world's going past us and getting ahead and we're falling behind. But James' reminder of the sinfulness, the evil of boasting and arrogance is James' mercy to expose sin and its carnival mirror. It's like James is saying to us, church, don't be deceived. I know that's what the world says greatness is, but don't be deceived. The world is wrong. It takes faith to believe that, but it's wrong. Jesus defined greatness this way. Mark 10, 43-45. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Well, how can we know that Jesus is right? For even the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus taught, James then also taught. James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The chief end of man is not me. My glory, my comfort, my name, my desires. Church, the, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The way up, the Bible says, is to go low. It takes faith to believe that. To humble ourselves before God, to humble ourselves before our neighbor, and to love our neighbor by serving them. Believing that Jesus is right, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Our flesh will fight us on this, the world will say that we're wrong, but we know it's the path that's true. Because it's the path that Jesus took as our forerunner. First the cross, then the crown. Let's trust Jesus together. Let's pray.